Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Okay, everyone, repeat after me. Ponoya oprovdania. Ponoya. 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 Oprovdania. Oprovdania. Do you know what that means? Oprovdania. What if I were to say to you? Close. Close. No. What if I were to say to you, the Mueller report was a complete and total. Ponoya oprovdania. Exoneration. Total exoneration in Russian. Excellent. You're welcome. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the still waiting for the Mueller Report edition. I'm Shane Harris, have not yet received my copy of the Mueller Report. No, but but we know what it says. It's a total exoneration. Sure, it's a ponio <laughs> oprotania. Wait, did he write it in Russian? That would be amazing. <laughs> that, that wouldn't be at all significant <laughs> or surprising. This is the Google Translate edition of the Mueller Report. Oh boy, I am here in the jungle studio with my good friends Tamarkov and Wittis Ben Wittis and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys. Hi, Hi. Shane. It's that time, kind of, almost. It's sort of like Christmas has come or like pick your holiday and you've received a box and you know it's a box with a present in it. But you can't quite open it. But somebody wrote on the outside, here are some things in the box. <laughs> it's like the Harry and normal. David packages where the gift message is just stuck on the label on the outside. Yeah, or like where it's like arranged in like a fruit-like basket structure. But you know, like I can see a banana and some chocolate-covered <laughs> hazelnuts. But like, is that a sausage inside or is that a bag of pretzels? <laughs> or are you just happy to see me? <laughs> <laughs> is that a sausage in your report, Robert Mueller? <laughs> Oh, dear. I didn't know it was that kind of report. (laughs) (laughs) On the podcast this week, we're going to talk about what else. We're actually going to break this down into three segments um, following the very helpful summary that Bill Barr, the attorney general, wrote for us. Um, First, we're going to talk about uh, what Bill Barr says about the special counsel's report findings on conspiracy and collusion with the Russian interference campaign in 2016. Then we are going to talk about the question of obstruction of justice and then Finally, we're going to look forward to what happens next when the full Mueller report or some version of it is released. And we'll get to that after a word from our sponsor. This episode of Rational Security is supported by Blinkist, giving you key ideas from best-selling nonfiction distilled by experts into bite-sized text and audio. Get a free seven-day trial at Blinkist.com rs. Okay, so let's start with the question of, and if you hear the rustling, by the way, this is my annotated copy of the. Um, it's the actually letter. the Mueller report. He's just holding it back <laughs> from you, <laughs> pretending it's the bar letter. I made a deal with somebody. I made a deal with the devil, and I can't give it to you yet. Um, so, okay, first, just set some ground rules here. When we're going to talk about this section where Barr essentially summarizes the key findings of. Russian intervention in the election. And he does say as a a first step 
that the special counsel's report is divided into two parts. And the first describes the investigation of Russian interference and the election and the, uh, and the report outlines Russian effort to influence the election and documents and crimes committed by persons associated with the government, Russian government in connection with those efforts. So we're talking about the hacking. And it also talks about social media interference as well. So we're taking that kind of those two elements, right? The actual hacking by the GRU elements and the Internet Research Agency uh, elements associated with the manipulation of social media. And I think the key aspect here is it says, this is quoting Barr's language, the special counsel's investigation did not find that the Trump campaign or anyone associated with it conspired or coordinated with Russia in its efforts to influence the 2016 presidential election. As the report states, now quoting Mueller, the investigation did not establish that members of the Trump campaign conspired or coordinated with the Russian government in its election interference activities. Susan, let me start with you because we've talked a little bit about this. But there seems to be a vast space that could encompass what that sentence means. It can be technically accurate that it did not establish the special counsel's report that members of the campaign conspired or coordinated with the Russian government. But we don't know what kind of activities happened that might have fallen well short of a crime or that might have gone right up to the edge and almost been a crime. So tackle that piece for us. Yeah. So the bar summary, which I think we have to assume is accurate. And written in good faith. And I, th- I think we should assume that it's written in in good faith, although that doesn't mean accepting its conclusions at, at face value. And I do think that there's, there's already reason to believe there was um, some political calculation in the nature of which uh, – manner in which the summary was assembled. It stands for one proposition unambiguously – which is that having examined all the evidence and conducted a thorough investigation, Robert Mueller's team does not believe they can prove in court beyond a reasonable doubt that any one associated with the Trump campaign participated in the two Russian interference efforts described. And I think we can also assume any other Russian interference in sort of in, in the in the general effort. In yeah, he didn't just forget election. to mention, oh, yeah, they did a totally different thing with Russia that we didn't tell you about or they didn't know about. Exactly. Now, a report underlying that that actually said, look, we looked everywhere and we agree there's some weird, maybe imprudent contacts and, you know, even some stuff that maybe people shouldn't have done. But but we really did examine everything and we just couldn't find any suggestion of, of any kind of coordination or effort. Like this all basically was a big coincidence, essentially. And, and some of this stuff looked bad, but, but we examined it really closely and just none of it amounted to anything in a way that I think would be sort of fairly characterized as pretty much an exoneration of the president. It's also consistent of a report that comes a hair's breadth away from the criminal standard, right? So it does have by a preponderance of evidence or, or all kinds of evidence that would suggest collusion, uh, but, but they don't think rises to the standard of sort of a criminal indictment. And then there's everything in between. And so for ordinary people, all that matters is whether or not a prosecutor thinks they can indict you or not. And once the prosecutors say, you know, we're, we're going to decline this prosecution, great, you get to move on with the rest of your life. When you're the president of the United States, though, Congress has to make an independent determination. The, the public has to make an independent determination. 
if conduct which falls below the prosecutorial standard, and I think we do have to defer to Robert Mueller's judgment. I don't think it's fair to then look at this evidence and say, but he should have been, uh, you know, this, this does meet the criminal standard. Accepting his judgment there can still be incredibly consequential politically and, and could well still serve as sort of grounds for impeachment. And so I don't say that to sort of say, well, this really could still be bad for the president. It's definitely good for the president that the investigation ended. It's definitely good for the president and everyone around him that no one else is getting indicted. It's just we don't know anything yet and sort of the degree to which we don't know stuff. I am surprised to see sort of people in the media declaring no collusion or that the president has been cleared on this. He just hasn't yet. Right. A lot of the headline writing has been sloppy, I think, on this. Um, ben, let me ask you, I and mean, now I get your reactions to this section, but also building off what Susan said, can we reasonably infer that in this section of the report, there's a lot of documentation about various actions, meetings, contacts, communications, et cetera, that then led up to the determination there's not a statutory offense here? Yes, I think you can definitely infer that because if you were going to conclude whatever did not establish, we did not find means, it surely means they looked at all the available evidence, they examined it and they measured it against a known legal threshold, right? So to do that, you would have had to go through an exercise of either looking at the evidence and finding and to take Susan's spectrum of possibility that it all didn't amount to a hill of beans. It's just, you know, a bunch of approaches by Russians and there's not really nothing there. Or you would have had to weigh all the evidence, amass all the evidence and find that it amounts to yay high but not yay high, which it would be high enough. And so I think you you have to assume there's a huge amount of evidentiary work underneath that conclusion. And the volume of evidence, given the number of things that we know that the Mueller investigation looks at, looked at is presumably very large. And I therefore assume that the amount of pagination in that section of the report is quite substantial. I, I don't know whether to think of it as in likely in the hundreds of pages or or what, but it's a lot. And so, yeah, I think the, the assumption has to be that there's a very large amount of forensic work under underneath that judgment. I, I think one of the reasons why I, setting aside the criminal culpability questions that, that Ben and Susan have been addressing, one of the reasons why I'm so keen to see the underlying report is because I want to understand the details both of what the Russians did, the nature of the interference, and more particularly, the nature of all those contacts that seem to have occurred between people in Trump's orbit and people on Trump's campaign and people associated with this Russian effort, even if they weren't the Russian government directly going to the strict language of Barr's letter. Um, because we know those contacts existed. A lot of this stuff has been reported. And so essentially what Barr's letter seems to be saying is, yeah, there was lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of smoke, but there's no fire. Yeah, And, and so if that's the case, then that paints a picture of a bunch of people working for the president, including some people who are still working for the president, who were careless, 
of the national interest, unpatriotic, reckless with their own bosses, now the president's reputation and vulnerability to uh, Russian penetration. And all of that, I think, is also really important for Americans to understand, not just for what it says about the president and his character and the characters of the people around them, not just because of potential criminal culpability, but because the core function of this report, the reason why, you know, ultimately the FBI began an investigation that was then taken over by Bob Mueller is because we were attacked by a hostile power. And we have to understand not just their side of that, but also our side of that, if we're going to correct our vulnerabilities. And so I think those details matter even beyond the sort of criminal conspiracy question. No, I, I think that's right. And sort of and, and take one example, and it's one that we've talked about before. We know that Michael Flynn had a conversation with, with Sergei Kislyak, the Russian ambassador, in which he represented that the United States was going to lift sanctions when the Trump administration came into office. We know that because the special counsel's office described it in indictments. What we don't know is whether or not Michael Flynn was genuinely freelancing, making representations to the Russian government on his own, or whether or not he was in any way, directly or indirectly, being directed by Donald Trump to make that representation. Now, if Donald Trump told Michael Flynn, tell the Russians we're going to lift, lift sanctions, that's not a crime, right? It's not the Logan Act. It's not a crime. It certainly isn't collusion in any sort of direct sense, right? It's hugely consequential for the United States of America to understand whether or not that happened. It puts all the later conduct related to sort of the firing of Jim Comey in a completely different light. And yet there's no reason why anyone would anticipate that would be part of the top line conclusions of was this criminal or non-criminal conduct. And so there are at least a dozen examples of sort of discrete facts that the Mueller investigation should have been in a position to answer that have to be in the report or we should expect to be in the report and I think are really important to allow the public to move forward. Personally, I would be surprised if Michael Flynn was really, really freelancing. But if Bob Mueller looked at the question and said he was, Donald Trump did not direct him to do this, then I think all you can do is say, OK. And I that's it, really good to know. It was an important <laughs> investigation. I, I was suspicious. I was wrong, and now we need to move on. Well, almost certainly, there's there might be events like or moments like that. I imagine there will certainly be moments too, <clears throat> where we learn things that are very troubling to a lot of people, even if they don't rise to the level of a crime. What I'm wondering is, let's say there is sort of the final the, the final word, if you like, on all of these kind of open questions that have been out there, and maybe a few more get added to the pile of instances of canoodling, to use another c word, that we didn't know about. Is that really going to matter to the public? Because I wonder if they will look at this and say, look, it's already been judged as to have not risen to the level of a crime. And if it's just more of the same that we've been hearing for two years of, yes, they had a lot of funny business going on with Russia, who cares? All right. Look, I don't think that there's a lot of evidence that anything on this stuff matters to the public very much. At the extreme depths of La Faire Russe for the president, his approval rating was around 36%. Now it is around 42%. 
if you take from in the 538 average. That's it not has, his favorite poll. Though. It has vacillated between in that range the whole time, irrespective of events. There's, you know, when good things happen for him, his approval rating doesn't go up very much. And when bad things happen, it doesn't go down very much. So he's in this very narrow range. The reason this is important is that it's objectively important, not that it may affect public opinion. It's that it actually matters to a reasonable understanding of who this person is, what his relationship to a foreign power is when he does things like Helsinki, what is behind that erratic behavior? Is it just, you know, Donald Trump up there saying, I know you expect me to stand up to Vladimir Putin, so fuck you, I won't because I, I do that sort of thing? Or is it, is there something darker behind it? And those questions matter, and the fact that they the fact that they may not influence public opinion very much, I, I think they should, but that's not really the reason that that we go through this exercise. We go through this exercise because the truth is important in its own right. So I agree with everything Ben just said. And yet I totally disagree that the Mueller report isn't going to move public opinion. And that's because public opinion is on a really complex topic, is driven and shaped by the responses of Congress in this area. Because it's too hard to figure out what exactly is significant and what isn't significant. And so Republicans, including parts of Trump's base, are looking to Republican members of Congress and sort of Republican thought leaders. In the past, we've had a huge, enormous body of credible media reports about all kinds of things. And what Congress has said in response to those media reports is, well, we don't know that that happened. We don't know that any of that happened. We don't know that there was a Trump Tower in Moscow meeting. We don't know that, that Jim Comey said that, uh, that Donald Trump uh, you know, told him to see his way to letting Flynn go, but Donald Trump says he didn't say that. So who are we to know? And so the power of the Mueller report to put things, even things we already know, in a document that Congress has agreed to accept as factual, I do think changes things because I think it is going to confront Congress with this information and with being required to respond to it. Now, I have no doubt that Republican members of Congress are not going to be rushing to impeach and say, oh, well, now that Mueller said, but they aren't going to be able to just shirk the question and pretend like it didn't happen or like they know that it didn't happen. They're going to have to respond to it. And I do think that that does have a, the power to dramatically shape the public's understanding of what the president did and whether or not it's acceptable. I guess I wish I agreed with you, but I suspect – I think we have abundant evidence – on both sides of the aisle, frankly, that in our current political moment, the facts matter a lot less than what you say the facts are. And that even if, you know, all the many hundreds of pages that this report apparently is, even if all of that had been released last week, you would still have two sides with competing narratives, political narratives, and each side would be alighting, if not outright ignoring certain facts as part of making their narratives. And Republicans have been willing to ignore all kinds of facts, like the fact that children are being separated from their parents and put in cages. And, you know, they do that blatantly and without shame. So I guess I don't see why this would be any different. 
Rational Security has a sponsor this week, Blinkist. It can be hard to find the time to sit down and learn more. Social media is addictive and remarkably uninformative most of the time. You may think you don't have time to read. You may not know what's out there to read. There's so much. Or you may be overwhelmed by the flood of all this content. So here's a suggestion for you. Blinkist is the only app that takes the best key takeaways, the need-to-know information from thousands of nonfiction books, and condenses them down so you can read or listen to 15-minute segments. Blinkist is for busy people who want to listen to the main points of books quickly without reading the entire book. It's a massive and growing library that includes so many nonfiction topics, self-help, business, health, and history— And it includes a lot of titles that will be of interest to Rational Security listeners. With its audio feature, Blinkist makes it easy to finish highlights from as many as four books a day. It's a great way to help decide which books you really need to dive into and which ones you're happy with just the major takeaways. Yesterday at the gym, I listened to the Blinkist audio for factfulness, 10 reasons we're wrong about the world and why things are better than you think. I also listened to A Short History of Brexit, From Brentry to Backstop. As a podcast-length history of UK-EU relations, I particularly recommend the latter, which is packed with good history. I am still new to Blinkist, but I'm finding it a great way of figuring out what books are out there and which ones I need to pay more attention to. And I can do this while commuting, while doing the dishes, and working out. So, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash RS, Rational Security, to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, dot com slash RS, to start your free seven-day trial. Again, Blinkist.com slash RS. Okay, so let's now move on to the second segment of the our letter, which he's so helpfully divided into segments for our podcast. He's a very organized man. It's actually, he's we're, a very loyal he's actually under contract to Rational Security oh, yeah. uh, to, to do all releases from the Justice Department in tripartite form. He's and doing, to give you that rustly paper because it's so awesome to he's wrestle. Doing a great... How the readers know it's real. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, as Barr describes, the report, the Mueller report's second part addresses a number of actions by the president, I'm reading here, most of which have been the subject of public reporting, so let's keep that in mind, that the special counsel investigated as potentially raising an obstruction of justice concern. After making a quote-unquote thorough factual investigation into these matters, the special counsel considered whether to evaluate the conduct under department standards governing prosecution and declination decisions, but ultimately determined not (laughs) to make a traditional prosecutorial judgment, which made everyone go... (laughs) <laughs> that was because literally what everyone did. Literally at that moment, Just you could like feel Washington. Just like the dog in the Victrola ad. Yeah, exactly. Because if there's one thing we know about Bob Mueller, he is a traditional prosecutor. <laughs> Some people looked at this and said, you had one job. <laughs> the special counsel, therefore, did not draw a conclusion one way or the other as to whether the examined conduct constituted obstruction. Instead, and this is what's in the report that we haven't seen yet, for each of the relevant actions investigated, remember much of which were the subject of public reporting, the report sets out evidence on both sides of the question and leaves unresolved what the special counsel views as his words, difficult issues of law, in fact, concerning whether the president's actions and intent can be viewed as obstruction. 
The special counsel states that, and here we get actual words from Mueller, quote, while this report does not conclude that the president committed a crime, it also does not exonerate him. Okay. If the first section on conspiracy seemed fairly straightforward, this is a mess. This raises so many more questions, I think, for everyone than it answers. There is a sort of bottom line or top line, however we're looking at this, that well, actually, no, I was about to say, <laughs> I want to be able to say, look, this much we know, the president is not being indicted for obstruction of justice. I don't think anyone expected the president to be indicted for obstruction of justice, considering there's an OLC opinion that you can't indict a sitting president. So, Ben, let's kind of take some of these piece by piece. First, can we infer or try to conclude anything, surely not definitively, but what are some of the possible reasons why we think Mueller might not have reached this decision. And I'm going to say I don't like the word punt because when you punt, you are punting to someone or something. But the spirit of it to a lot of people felt like a punt because it felt like there's no more room for him to go and he is just going to try and move on from it. So do we have, can we infer anything from this as why did Bob Mueller not do his one job? I don't think you can infer very much. And so let's let's consider three possibilities. One is the one embodied in the word punt, right, which is Bob Mueller had a job to do and he was kind of indecisive and determined, I just can't do it. I can't make a decision, so I'm not going to and actually declines to do it. I think that one's very unlikely to be honest. But it does seem to be what a lot of people are assuming and he's getting some criticism for it. Relatedly, he may have said, and this is what Barr kind of implies but doesn't say that he said, which is that he deferred to the attorney general on this question and like actually punted it to Barr and said, look, here are the facts. I – here is the arguments for it. Here is the arguments against. You decide. If he did that, I think that is pretty hard to defend on grounds that you know, you were appointed as special counsel precisely so that there would be an independent voice and this would not be decided by political actors, right? And so to defer to precisely the president's designee and by the way, who then consults with the president's other designee who is also a fact witness in this very investigation would be pretty hard to understand. So I'm going to also suggest that that is probably not what happened here. And that leaves me with possibility number three, which is that Mueller was making, making a judgment to defer to Congress and that the basic judgment may have been – and again, we don't know and we won't know until we see the, the report – that ultimately the real question here is not a criminal question. It's an impeachment question. It's a question of whether this conduct is acceptable. I am barred as a prosecutor from no pun intended. <laughs> indeed, from indicting the president. There's also a serious set of constitutional questions about the application of the obstruction statute in light of Article Two in the specific case of presidential conduct. So let's lay out the facts, give it to the constitutionally designated actor with neutral arguments on both sides and let them have at it. And then Barr comes in 
and makes his judgment on top of that. But that maybe was not the point that Mueller was trying to get to. So we don't know which of those three is the most likely, which one's the reality. I tend to partly because I've been looking for how the material gets to Congress from the beginning. I'm attracted to the third option as, as in my judgment, the most likely. Let me ask that question though and, and if others want to chime in, please. But I wondered that very same thing too. But then I thought, wait a minute. If Mueller's intention was to sort of lay all the facts on the table and let Congress – move it over to Congress where he thought that it was properly considered, why wouldn't Barr say that? Because it seems highly disingenuous otherwise because one way to read this and of course the way the president's reading this is it's an exoneration or he's clear even though it literally says it, it does not exonerate him. Shouldn't Barr have said, hey, Congress, Bob Mueller says you've got a job to do? So I think there's a – that would be true if Mueller was explicit in his intention and we don't know whether or not he was explicit in his intention. I find the idea that he intended for Barr to render his render this judgment as distinct from being surprised that Barr rendered his judgment. I find it impossible that, to believe that Mueller intended for Barr to make this judgment because he included the sentence Mueller did – while this report does not conclude the president committed a crime, it also does not exonerate him. Which is a weird sentence for a traditional prosecutor to say. Which is not the kind of thing that you would just tee up and say, well, shucks, we're totally stumped here. What do you think, Bill? You know, And so I think that the only way to plausibly understand this and keeping an open mind that maybe the report will prove me wrong is that Mueller said – this is a really difficult question on Article 2. It's really difficult on sort of the legal theory of can a course of conduct as opposed to discrete acts constitute obstruction? How should we even understand this? It's all playing out against a background in which we aren't going to indict this person. And so what we're going to do here is establish a record for someone else to examine. The idea that he was establishing a record for Bill Barr to examine doesn't make any sense because Bill Barr saying, I don't believe it's obstruction, has no legal operative effect. Mueller has said, we are declining to, to pursue this any further. Barr coming on top and saying, I don't believe that it's obstruction, doesn't change anything whatsoever. The only person or the only group that can actually do something with this information is Congress. And Mueller being a traditional prosecutor, Traditional prosecutors do not engage in legally extraneous conduct. They don't do things just for the heck of it. They say things because it has some impact. And the only operative effect here is what Congress decides to do with that information. So again, we have to see the underlying report. It would be astonishing if we didn't. But I don't think that I don't think it's plausible that there's any other way to read it. And I don't think it's especially disingenuous of Barr, right? Of course, it is a little bit misleading. But I do think that it's plausible that unless Mueller said quite explicitly, I'm leaving this for Congress, Barr got the report and he said, I'm the Attorney General of the United States. I'm transmitting a document onto Congress and I have an independent duty to also offer my interpretation of the law on this question. Could he have disclosed more? I, I guess we'll see whenever we see the actual report. Yeah, so I'm I'm thinking through your logic, Susan, and I guess I could find it compelling 
if I took on board the idea that Barr understood his role as an independent role of making some kind of assessment, making some kind of report, but I understood his role as merely issuing a summary, which does not involve making any independent analysis. It is doing a Cliff Notes version. That's what I understood the role of the attorney general here to be. So hasn't he gone beyond that, number one? And then number two, the fact that he's in a position to do this, even though inevitably a special prosecutor investigating a president is going to have to leave it to Congress to make a judgment about how to regard the conduct of that president within the framework of the Constitution. Given that that's the structural nature of this, maybe there was an error in the law and the regulations that were created here that have governed this whole process in putting the attorney general in between the special counsel and Congress. Maybe that needs to get fixed. Hmm. So in other words, clarifying. Hmm. That, that, that the special counsel's report needs to go in full to Which Congress. is what the old special counsel regs right. were, yeah, right? This is you get into some pretty serious constitutional questions pretty fast when you try to remove the attorney general from this process. What and this is exactly the kind of thing that, that Barr, who argues for sort of – who, who is somebody who believes that the independent counsel law was unconstitutional and believes uh, that as part of the separation of powers, the executive branch, he – you cannot separate out parts of the executive branch from the from the president. He's someone whose legal interpretation is far more inclined to believe that, hey, I'm the attorney general of the United States. I and have if there's to a play void this here, role. Yeah. I mean, look, I don't want to sort of overread every single word, but he doesn't say Bob Mueller left it to us. He right. doesn't say he said they declined to reach a traditional prosecutorial judgment. Determined and not to make a traditional. They determined not to. <laughs> and then since they didn't make that judgment, we are going to answer it. And he's so flagrant and clear that that's what's happening. It's if, – if Mueller had left the question for him, I think he would have said he left the question for us. Uh, I just want to take one or two more minutes in this segment to talk about another piece that has – Certainly got me actually quite confused, I will say, and I'm not sure that I'm fully understanding it the right way. So maybe one of you can correct on this or maybe it's just con confusing. Barr writes, in making this determination, which is the determination that there is um, not sufficient evidence to – there's not sufficient evidence to establish that the president committed obstruction of justice offense. Barr writes, we noted that the special counsel recognized that, quote, the evidence does not establish that the president was involved in an underlying crime related to Russian interference – and now this is Barr, and that while not determinative, the absence of such evidence bears upon the president's intent with respect to obstruction. Now, I've talked to some people like David Chris when I spoke to him who said essentially don't overread that. It's just saying this is not a determinative issue. It's just that it's one fact that they're taking into consideration, which is essentially right. If the president – if there's no evidence the president was involved in the crime of conspiracy with regards to the Russian interference, it weakens the case against him for obstruction of justice in an investigation into that conspiracy. Is that right? And I mean, should, is, is that should we are we should we how much weight should we put on that, Susan? So, I think there's two ways we should put weight on it. One is that 
it directly maps to the logic of that 19-page memo that Barr wrote before he became the attorney general in which he said it can't be obstruction because there can't be obstruction if there isn't an underlying crime. So it's a little bit of a hint that this is Barr clinging to his prior uh, right, his, his prior reading of the law, uh, which I did not think made a particularly compelling case. Now, they aren't saying it's dispositive. It is plainly wrong that somebody cannot obstruct justice into if there isn't an underlying crime. Martha Stewart, for example, right? There are lots and lots of examples here. This actually goes back to, to the to the question of whether or not it's at, it's at all significant. Because, of course, yes, if Trump is fully aware that there is absolutely nothing, nothing to the Russia story whatsoever and he's completely untouchable, it does go into the calculation of whether or not there's corrupt intent. But this goes back to that question of what did he know about Michael Flynn's conduct? Because you don't have to know that there's a that there's a big Russia conspiracy or you don't have to participate in any part of that conspiracy. If you are aware that somebody, for example, has lied to the FBI and committed a crime, then all of your conduct relating to, say, telling the FBI director to let that person go or firing the FBI director for that investigation is evidence of obstruction, and that would go to obstruction. And so, again, we're, we're reading the tea leaves of this very sort of loose and vague summary, but the fact that they felt the need to include this, and it is so weak on its face, I do think invites the big questions of, well, wait a minute, what's in the underlying document? Because this sounds a whole lot like the logic you were using before you knew the facts, and it didn't make any sense then, and it doesn't make any sense now. Okay. So for our last crack at this, let's look forward a bit. And in fact, Barr helpfully has a third section, Status of Department Review, Status of Department's <laughs> Review, um, in which he essentially says, uh, he does say, I am mindful of the public interest in that matter for my goal for my re- that reason, my goal and intent is to release as much of the special counsel's report as I can consistent with applicable law regulations and department policies, which is what Bill Barr said in his confirmation hearing some months ago. Uh, it's our understanding we've reported and other news organizations have reported is that we're looking forward to seeing some significant portion, I think it's fair to say, of the Mueller report uh, in weeks, not months. If there are redactions, I would expect that certainly grand jury protected material might be redacted. If there's national security implications of releasing certain information, maybe about ongoing investigations, that might be redacted. Although I don't know what those might be since the Mueller probe is shut down. Maybe we could address that. But, but Tammy, let's, let's look forward to the day when something that looks more like the Mueller report than what the bar summary of that report comes out. It's going to land – in an environment in which the president has taken multiple victory laps, in which his supporters have you know, uh, gone after – critics of the president have gone after the press, said how wrong everyone got it. But it's going to deliver a body of facts. And so talk about like what that world is going to look like and, and I guess maybe if you want to think about it, what would you like to see in terms of the report? And do we have to see the full thing to settle this once and for all? Well, we're not going to see the full thing, right? Because as you said, there are inevitably going to be redactions for legitimate purposes and that's that's okay. And so Congress, even uh, members of Congress who get access to classified information who would be able to get some of potentially some of the national security information are not going to get grand jury information. And, you know, so no one except 
the Justice Department are going to have the 100% complete story. But, you know, I'm thinking about the fact that to our north, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau right now is embroiled in a major political scandal that may in fact end his glorious reign as Prime Minister. Why? Because he pressured his Minister of Justice to find a way to ease off on a criminal prosecution of a company for uh, sanctions busting. And it is clear from the record and the testimony that his intent was a concern that this would harm the Canadian economy. Okay? And, you know, maybe to be kind to this company. But it wasn't because he had he was somehow personally benefiting from it. There's nothing it, that implicates him directly. So it is nonetheless a huge political scandal. <laughs> and it should be, right? And so going, you know, thinking about the obstruction component, this context matters. This is a political issue, whether the president interfered in a in a Justice Department investigation that has national security implications, even if it was not for criminal intent, it's still maybe a really bad thing to do. And the American people should have a chance to to chop on that. And and that brings me, I think, to my fundamental point about where we go from here. Yes, this was always from the beginning going to result in information that would have to be available to Congress for a judgment about potentially impeachable conduct or or even just things on which they would want to pass laws to better protect the country from Russian interference or from corrupt American officials. Um, well and good. But at the end of the day, this report, especially that it is done now and will be released to Congress in the coming weeks, this report's political judgment will be rendered by the American people. It will be a core component of the narratives put forward by Republicans and Democrats going into the 2020 elections. On the Republican side, it's going to be the Democrats are just dead-ender, you know, delegitimizers of the electoral outcomes that the American people chose Donald Trump and they can't stand it and it's a witch hunt and therefore you shouldn't trust them. And the Democratic narrative is going to be either this is criminal and the president's a criminal or it's going to be the president might not be a criminal, but he's venal and everyone who works for him is venal and in it for themselves and not interested in protecting the national security of the American people. And that's going to, you know, it almost doesn't matter what the facts are in the report. Those are going to be the narratives. Uh, and that political judgment will come in November of 2020. I, ben, oh, sorry. I do have a question about what Mueller did with respect to labeling information. Because right now we're in this void, right? There's the summary. They're combing through it. Barr actually just told the AP or he just the AP has just reported that Barr told the Senate Judiciary Committee that he's combing through special counsel Robert Mueller's report, removing classified and other information of ho in hopes of releasing it in April. That's actually the first mention of classified information we've heard. So I've been curious if there was classified information Here's what I'm curious about. You're Bob Mueller. You know you're going to hand over this to your report. You know everybody in the world, this is the world's most predictable fight. Why would you not have labeled all the 6E material in advance? You had to have labeled all the classified material in advance. Why did the special counsel's office not do any of the advance work on those other questions? Now, the executive privilege questions, those more prudential ones, the attorney general would have to make. But I am curious... 
if he did that work or if he didn't, why he why he wouldn't have kind of proactively taken the time to identify the information, substitute it if possible, just to spare us this long, drawn-out process of redaction. But we don't know that he didn't. I mean, this is part of the discretion that the attorney general and the deputy attorney general have in addition to the writing of their summary letter. They have the discretion to hold this thing for a few weeks. And even if he labeled it all, they might want to just go back and check. But you then know, or the cutting and pasting might take a really long time. And the, and if they have, you know, some political incentive here, it is to give the White House time to let their narrative take hold. But then that really will look like precisely the kind of disingenuous ruse. I, I, that, I'm, this is just a, a little bit of the puzzle. I want to give... Bill Barr, the benefit of the doubt here. Let us imagine that the report shows up and it is many hundreds of pages, which I think is a, is a likelihood. And it is full of isolated but real grand jury information that is actually a felony to release. And it has classified information throughout it labeled appropriately and there are actual executive privilege questions associated with some material. There is no way you can simply take that document and throw it out there to Congress or into the public domain without a serious review. A serious review of that material is going to take time. Now, I there are aspects of Bill Barr's letter that I don't love. Uh, I, I think he could have been a little bit more capacious in describing certain things than, than he was so that he didn't leave this, how should we understand what multitudes these broad sentences could contain kind of questions associated with it. I think like a, a maybe having released some of Mueller's top line paragraphs might have helped. But – the idea that this report shows up and that Bill Barr is going through a reasonable process of reviewing it and figuring out what can and can't be released, I just don't – that doesn't trouble me particularly and I'm not I, – I haven't seen anything so far that gives me particular concern that they are not doing that in good faith. I do think the key thing is when that document is released – for there to be a serious examination of what was not released and making sure that we actually get uh, – that there is no sort of political inflection but I, to, to that. But I do think having a kind of trust but verify attitude toward this is the right posture and I don't think if they manage to get that out in mid-April, it having been filed in late March – that doesn't strike me as a crazy length of time at all. Let me ask you all. We have a few more minutes in the segment. But OK, if the report comes out and let's just say it does contain hundreds of pages as I think we correctly assume it very well might and tons of derogatory information for the president or even just like a repetition but with more authority and conclusion of, of the derogatory information that's already been reported over the past two years – does the public narrative shift or have people just put on their jerseys and they've gone into their camps and the Trump side has taken the top line and to some degree distorted it by saying it exonerates him, which it doesn't really, but it's a pretty good you know, result for him objectively. And then the other side says, no, 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 no. Everything that was in the Mueller report is the real truth and we get nowhere. Look, Susan and I earlier outlined, I think, the parameters of the possible answers to that. On the one hand, 
I argued, hey, look, his ceiling is low as a poll matter. His base is relative. You know, there's 36, 37 percent that are going to support him under almost any conceivable circumstances. On the other hand, Susan points out, hey, when you have a record and it's, you're describing now a many hundred page record that this stuff is true, this happened, don't underestimate how hard it is to walk away from a very clear record. I think if that materializes, that it, you know, we learn that in fact the judgment of prosecutors and the judgment of history are very different. A whole lot of things that are really unpleasant happened, but the evidence of them is not quite at the level that you would bring a criminal case about it, either in conspiracy or something else. Uh, if that's what materializes, we're going to learn a lot about the Trump, you know, what parts of the Trump base are are shakable in their support and what parts are not. I don't haven't seen a lot of evidence so far that there's this chunk of the Republican base that is just waiting for, you know, waiting to be persuaded by evidence-based argumentation. So color me skeptical that it's, you know, that the bottom is going to fall out of support when that happens. You know, I I think there's one other dimension of this that we have to, we have to not let it drop out. We have to focus on it for a minute, which is this whole thing started because of Russian interference into our electoral process. And from the beginning, the president's, not just his unwillingness to hold the Russians accountable for that, but his willful cozying up to them despite it and despite all their other behavior that gets in our way and harms our interests and hurts our friends around the world, that is an issue. And that is an issue where Senate Republicans have been willing to buck the president, force him to impose sanctions on the Russians when he didn't want to. And when this report finally does hit the Hill, I imagine that that part of the narrative at least will be relatively uncontested. And it will matter how the administration responds to the full, comprehensive, authoritative laydown of Russian interference in the election, whether they are willing to impose consequences on the Russians or whether they aren't. Because if they aren't, I think it's almost inevitable that congressional Republicans, enough of them, will unite with Democrats on the Hill to do that instead. And that could be a fodder for a political debate in the run-up to the 2020 election. So, you know, it's it might not be, okay, we're sick of hearing about crime, collusion, whatever, but Russia is a national security threat. The American people understand that. And I think members of Congress are going to feel compelled to do something about it. Okay, let's move on to object lessons. Um, I will go first since it's uh, Mueller-related, sort of. This uh, is a story that absolutely delighted me as readers of my first book. The watchers will understand. This came from America's finest news source, The Onion. (laughs) Dateline, Washington. Following the completion of the special counsel's 22-month probe, Attorney General William P. Barr declared Monday that Robert Mueller's investigation fully exonerates all members of Ronald Reagan's presidential administration (laughs) from involvement in the Iran-Contra affair. Quote, I've reviewed Mr. Mueller's findings and have determined conclusively that neither the late president nor any White House or cabinet officials serving between 1981 and 1989 ever ordered, oversaw, or even knew about the covert sales of arms to Iran, Mm. 
Barr said in a letter to the House and Senate Judiciary Committee, clearing key figures such as National Security Advisor John Poindexter and former staffer Oliver North, and a move that finally lifts what many have seen as a dark cloud over the scandal-plagued presidency. Um, it goes on to name a few other uh, Iran-Contra central figures. I just thought that was delightful. And as Nanyan really can do in these sort of moments of national uh, – uh, uh, Pregnant national moments, I guess, uh, sort of just nails it out of the park. I thought I almost sent this to John Poindexter, and I was really <laughs> afraid he would not find it remotely. <laughs> I can wait a couple. Do you days. think he gets a, a lot of Iran Contra humor, like people texting him? You know, I don't know. But when I was writing the book, you know, sometimes like you know, you have Google alerts, and I have one for him, and it would pop up during like this day in history, John Poindexter was indicted, <laughs> and I once read, I was like, Hey, do you remember where you were this day? He's like, No. <laughs> Do you think about it a lot? I don't. <laughs> uh, ben, you want to go next? All right. My object is a shout-out to Monica Lewinsky for her shout-out to Oren Kerr. So Oren Kerr yesterday at 11.22 p.m. Uh, tweets, imagine if the Star Report had been provided only to President Clinton's Attorney General Janet Reno, who then read it privately and published a four-page letter based on her private reading stating her conclusion that President Clinton had committed no crimes, to which Monica Lewinsky tweets, and just take a moment to appreciate that Monica Lewinsky here is tweeting Orrin Kerr, Fourth Amendment god from the University of Southern California, she tweets, if, period, fucking, period, only, period. <laughs> uh, and I think that that combination is a just one of the great things in the history of Twitter. Also a testament to Monica Lewinsky's unshakable good humor about her inevitably now public life. Also, that was a major subtweet of Neil Cott, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so my mine is unrelated to the Mueller investigation, um, and it's a it's a story from the L.A. Times. Um, I know we're all focused elsewhere right now, um, but it's the story that the Marine Corps, the Commandant of the Marine Corps, has warned the Pentagon that deployments to the southern border and funding transfers to border security, among other unex- unexpected demands, have quote posed unacceptable risk to Marine Corps combat readiness and solvency. That is the commandant of the Marine Corps saying that Donald Trump's fake emergency has is causing a real emergency that by putting the strain to the Pentagon's budget and to uh, and to the military by deploying them to the border, we are actually seeing consequences in other elements of important military readiness. That's not the deep state. That is, uh, you know, these are individuals who, uh, you know, have have served uh, presidents of, of both parties. Um, they are sounding the alarm. And so as the news inevitably becomes overtaken by Mueller and whatever the next new outrage or scandal is, I'm remembering to sort of keep keep our ball our eye on the wall because this stuff is the consequences of this stuff is going to play out for a very very long time. And we have to note that General Neller went to my high school. Oh, I hope he listens to the podcast. Well, if he doesn't yet, he should now. <clears throat> well, if he is now, this is the part where we tell him. Rational Security is a production of Lawfare, and he can find our show archive at lawfareblog.com. He could also buy caps, mugs, baby sling things. 
Baby yeah. Gross. Onesies, baby baby gross. gross. What is yeah. it called again? Lawfaremerchandise.com? TheLawfareStore.com. Perfect. Okay. He'll get it. He'll get it one day. One of these days I'll remember where we sell things. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please make sure to leave a, ra- a rating and a review. It really helps us out. Our podcast audio engineer this week is Michaela Fogel. The podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Donald Trump and his Janet Jackson tribute band, Rhythm Exoneration. (laughs) (laughs) Deep cut, Shane. Deep cut. I'm delighted by this one. I don't know why. I'm sure Sophia Yan is as well. On behalf of my good friends, Tamar Kaufman Wittes, Ben Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll see you next week. Bonnoya oprovdania. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 